Let's open up our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 5. And let's read uh, verses uh, 22 through 33. Now let's look at the first, uh, let's look at verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now this is very important. A woman is to be subject to her own husband. This does not mean she's supposed to be subject to every man. She is only required to submit to other men in the same way her husband is. What do I mean by that? For example, the husband is to submit to the government. So is the wife in the same way. Husband should submit to church leadership. The wife should in the same way. But another man has no right to lead my wife as though he were the husband. And my wife does not owe submission to another man as she does to me. With regard to other men, she's in the same relationship that I am. Then it says here, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now some people have wrongly interpreted this text. That my wife should submit to me in the same way that she submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what it's teaching. Because there's a difference between me and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, and what is it? Well, just about everything. He's Lord. I'm not. He is perfect. I'm not. He's infallible. I'm not. So what does this mean? The wife submits to her husband as an act of obedience to the Lord. When the Lord Jesus Christ gives the wife a commandment like you shall not steal, that's not open for discussion. He's not asking for her opinion. She's to obey. However, in my wife's relationship with me, when I lead my family, that's open to discussion. I will draw counsel from my wife. We will discuss the matter. And sometimes she'll even be right. And I need to see that and change my opinion. See, we're leaders, but we're not all knowing and we're not infallible. And we should desire also the counsel of our wives and we should make a decision in a unified way. Now, I think it's also very important here that it says wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know, in the Jewish religion, we have the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And every Jewish male had to say that. And what they did was to be unto the Lord. In the Mishnah, which is a commentary of the law, women and children and slaves were not required to say the Shema. Now what that means is this. The wife was just supposed to obey her husband. The child was just to obey the dad. The slave was just to obey the master. But when Christianity comes in, what do we see? We see the woman's relationship with God amplified. She's not to do it just because her husband said so. She's to do it as unto the Lord. So in a sense, the wife, her life is not governed by her husband, but ultimately governed by the commandments of God. And the husband has authority only in the sense that he is speaking and moving in agreement with the commandments of God. Now, I want you to see, we've talked about submission. I want you to see the opposite of submission. What does the Bible say that it's like for a man who has a wife who refuses to submit? Well, Proverbs 21, 9, look what it says. It says, it is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Now, now listen to that. You may read that and think it's funny. What you need to see is that it's true. 
Women, listen to me. You're married to a fallible man. You're married to a man who sins. Being con contentious is not going to change him. It's just going to make it worse. Here's what will happen. You're contentious with him. He will fight with you. But you know what? Eventually you're going to win. But really you're going to lose. What do I mean? Eventually he's just going to give up. He's just going to be quiet. He's just going to become passive. He's just going to stay out of the house as much as he can. Because it's better for him to live on the roof than to live with you. Now, the word here, contentious woman, it means one who quarrels, one who is always opposing. It even means brawling, like a guy in the street fighting, always complaining, always opposing, always fighting. It's no way to have a family. Proverbs 21:19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. This word is can also be translated an angry woman, a bitter woman, a woman who is easily provoked. It says it's better to live in a desert than to live with her. Have you ever been in a desert? I have. It's not a very nice place. But a man would rather live there than with a contentious wife. Here's another thing that's important. At least in tradition, a desert was also the dwelling place of demons. It's better to live with demons than a quarrelsome wife. Listen to that. That's horrible. I know it sounds funny, but think about it. He'd rather live in a desert. He'd rather live on the roof. He'd rather be surrounded by demons than to be with a contentious woman. Proverbs 27:15 A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. Also realize this. If you're this way, you're not going to win him. You're going to lose him. Not only are you going to lose him, you're going to bring judgment upon yourself. Also know this. The sins of the parents visiting the sins of the children. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever complained that your children don't submit to you? They don't listen to you? They argue with you? Maybe they learned it from you. Maybe they just watched you. That's where they got it. Now you think I'm just talking about the women now. Don't worry, in a minute I'm going to start talking about the men. But you need to hear this. Now, let's go on to verse 23. For the woman is head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, this text not only declares the husband's authority, but also defines it. It says, for the husband is head of the wife. That's a declaration of authority. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Now, husband, listen to me. You've been given authority. Be afraid. Be afraid. Boy. This is very dangerous. You know one of the greatest problems in Christianity? One of the greatest problems in the pulpit? Sometimes we do not realize what we're saying. And, and people do not realize that there is cause for great concern. You say, yeah, I've been given authority. Do you not fear God? Do you not know what that means? Sir, you have been given authority. And if you don't exercise it, you're in rebellion against God. And if you exercise it wrongly and do damage to your family, you will be answerable to God. How is our authority defined? 
The man is to lead his family under the leadership of Christ. Adam was to order creation. He was to order the earth. He was to subdue it under the authority of the creator. Do you see that? You are to order your family not according to the way you think it ought to be. You are to order your family under the leadership and the commands of Jesus Christ. Secondly, you are to lead the way Christ leads. Not like Caesar. Not like some dictator. No! Like Christ. He leads for the benefit of His bride. He uses His authority to serve His bride. And also, He leads... The godly man leads for the redemption of his wife and his family. Look what it says. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. What is Christ's goal in leading the church? It's salvation. The salvation of the church. Now, we need to be very careful here. In the New Testament, the word savior is only applied to God and to Christ. But... Here we can see something very important. The man has something of a redemptive role. And I think the best way to put it is this. He is to live his life to be a sanctifying influence to his wife. That the fullness of Christ's salvation comes to his wife. Now let's ask ourselves some questions, men, and answer them. Is my wife more Christ-like because of my ministry to her? You may be saying, well, I don't really have a ministry to her. That's the pastor's job. No, it's not. Not in that way. Is she more like Christ because she's married to you? How are you ministering to her so that she becomes more like Christ? Let's ask another question. Is my wife increasing in the fruit of the Spirit? Do I see love, joy, peace, patience, and all these other things in her life? Has it become greater since she married me? Or has she just become bitter? Another question. Is my wife seeking first the kingdom in a greater way because of her marriage to me? Another question. Is my wife becoming more useful to Christ? Is she? Last question. Is my wife flowering as a person or is she wilting? As a person, my wife is a person. She's a part of me, but she's not just an extension of me. She's a person in her own right. Is she flowering spiritually, but in every other way? Is she flowering? You know, in, in the messages to the churches in the book of, of Revelation, it says that the believer will receive a stone. And a name will be written on it that only Christ knows. Christ and that believer. Now, I don't want to be overly symbolic. I want you to think about that. My wife will receive a stone that has a name on it that I'm not going to know. Only Christ and her. What does that tell me? She has her own relationship with Christ. I'm not the mediator. It's not dependent on me. She's her own person. And not just spiritually. But it's the husband's job to do things like this. Find out, you know, what are the things that your wife wants to be? What does she want to do? What of those things that she wants to do is biblical? Are there some dreams that she has? Some delights that she's never made known? For example, you sit down with your wife. Hey, you know, is there anything that you would like to do? And she says, well, yeah, I've always wanted to learn how to take pictures. You mean like photography? 
Yeah, I've always wanted to do that. What do you need? Well, a camera. <laughs> and there's some lessons I can take in town. Well, you think you can do that with your time schedule? Yeah, I think so. Yep. But I'd have to go out on Tuesday night to do it. Well, you know, I could watch the kids. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's not just about, you know, church. It's about who is she as a person. And of course, there are some things in which, you know, you're going to both agree on. They're not right. You can't do them. But you want to find these things out and, and help her to grow. Do you see what I mean? Yes. No. Yes. Yes. All right, let's go on. It says in verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Now, every the word everything means everything. But what does it mean in this context? Does it mean that the Lord must submit to I mean the my wife must submit to everything I tell her? We know that's not what Paul's saying. I mean we can use other examples. For example, should we submit to the government? Yes, we should. And we should honor leaders. But remember the apostles, the government said, you must stop preaching in the name of this Jesus. And what did the apostles say? We must obey God and not you. So there are limitations to human authority. If a husband asks a wife to do something that is totally contrary to scripture and offends the wife's conscience, then he has no authority. But now wives, be careful. Don't use this as an argument for everything. Everything your husband says, you go to the Bible and try to find a verse against it. Or you say, that offends my conscience. He says, honey, I, I think that we need to do a better job cleaning the house. And then you pull out a verse that says, no, I'm free in Christ. I don't have to do that. Or that offends my conscience. Be very careful. You know, whenever I'm teaching like youth and I tell them they ought to obey their parents. They always ask me immediately the same question. I say, you need to obey your father. They raise their hands. What if my father asked me to take a bomb and blow up the government building? And I always ask them this question. When was the last time your father asked you to do something like that? Because maybe I need to call the police. You see, we're always looking for a way not to do what God says. Let me show you how this would work even if you have an, an unbelieving husband. You're a Christian and you go to church every time the doors are open, not just to the main services, but I mean to everything. And your unbelieving husband comes to you and he says, I don't like this. You're just in church all the time. You should not say that I must obey God rather than you, because God does not command you to be in church every day. He commands you not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So you should humbly say this. I do enjoy going to church. Am I failing you some way in the home? Is the house in disorder because I'm going to church? If he says yes, because it is, then you're wrong. You don't neglect your duties in home, especially when you have an unbelieving husband. But even if he says no, you're not neglecting your duties. Then ask him. Tell him, I love the Lord. And it would really hurt me to stop going to the main service of the church. To honor you, I will stop going to all these other minor events. But please allow me to continue serving God in this one area. You see that? 
Be very careful of how you exercise your spirituality. Now, let me just give you this, this word here. It says, wives ought to submit to their husbands in everything. I understand this not only as a command that my wife has to obey, but something that I have to work at. How is this command achieved? It's not achieved mechanically by me saying, look at Ephesians 5. I'm the husband, you're the wife, obey me in everything. It's not the way it's done. It's to fellowship with my wife. To grow in Christ with my wife, converse with my wife, so that we become of one mind. We come to think alike, to have the same godly desires. Now remember what I told you about the wheel. The spokes never touch one another, but the closer they get to the axe, to the middle, the closer they come together. I'm not trying to make my wife like me or to think like me, and she shouldn't try to make me think like her. But as both of us grow in the mind of Christ, we will come together in unity of our thinking. So this is not achieved through coercion or manipulation, but by communion, by growing together in Christ. Now, let me give you a practical example of leadership. Let's say that I begin to think that we need to move to another city and be missionaries or something, or that we need to buy a new car, which is really funny because my car is 15 years old, so I probably do need to buy a new car. Let's say I've got to make an important decision. I don't make the decision and go tell my wife. That is wrong, dangerous. She's my main counselor. I'm going to go to her and say, you know, I think that the Lord wants us to move to another city. If she said, you know, I've been thinking the same thing. Well, that makes it easy. We do it. But what if I say, you know, I've been thinking about the Lord may be wanting us to move to another city. What should she say? Let's go. No. Should she say that's wrong? No. She should say. Well, this is the first time I've heard of this. Can you give me time to think about it and pray? Sure, that's why I'm telling you. She thinks about it, she prays, we talk about it, we discuss it. And she says, I, I just don't think this is right. So what do I do? I do what I think I ought to do. No, I don't do that. Oh, I do what she says. No, I don't do that either. Well, what do you do? For right now, I'm not going to do anything. Her being in agreement with me means a lot. So we're going to keep talking about it and praying about it until we come to an agreement or until I know we have to make a decision. And I ask her, I know you're not in agreement, but can you joyfully follow me in this? See, I'm going to wait as long as I can, but if we have to make a decision and we're not in agreement, but she can follow me, then I've got to make that decision. And if I'm right, I don't say to her, I told you so. And if I'm wrong, she doesn't use it against me because she knows how hard it is to be a leader. And she knows I'll be held accountable before God. Yeah. Now look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now in the Roman Greco society, the duties of a wife to a husband were often recognized. But the duties of a husband to a wife were not recognized. You see how Christianity is different. We've got the duties of the wife to the husband, but now we have the husband's duty to the wife. And Paul spends three times more, uses three times more space to talk about the husband's duties than the wife's duty. That means our responsibility is greater. And 
It's more demanding. Listen to me. It is more demanding. What does the wife need to do? Be submissive to her husband and respect him. What does the husband have to do? Die. Which one would you rather do? Look what it says here. Husbands love your wives. And the husband goes, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's so romantic. Oh Lord, how am I supposed to do it? Die. Well, that's no fun. He gave up his life. For what? His bride. Are you liking this better now, ladies? Why does he lead? For the benefit of his wife and his children. What does he get out of it? He gets to die. But if a grain of wheat doesn't die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Men, you are not created for self-realization. You were not created to go out there and get everything you can get for yourself. You were created to be servants of Christ, to lose your life that you might find it. That's the way it works. And you will never, as a Christian, you will never have peace. You will never know joy until you accept this cross. See, we think of crosses on the missionary field, don't we? You know, a missionary dies on the mission field. A missionary leaves his home and goes to a foreign land. Do you know what marriage is? It's an opportunity to die. I know that doesn't sound very good, but it's, it's not all that marriage is. It's the foundation. It's the foundation to everything in the Christian life. We die to self. We serve Christ by serving others. And what happens? We find life we find life we create beautiful things by our death husbands love your wives love love her love her she should know she should know what is the testimony of the church? I mean, what is the church always talking about? What does the bride of Christ always say? My Savior loves me. How do you know He loves you? He gave Himself for me. Why do you love Him? Because He loved me first. Now let's look at that. What should be the thing that a wife... Most tells everybody about her husband. He loves me. He loves me. How do you know he loves you? He gives himself for me. Why do you love him so much? Because he loved me first. Every day he's first in love. I hear men that will say, my wife doesn't love me. Again, listen to this. Why does Christ's bride love him? Because he loved her first. Maybe your wife doesn't seem like she loves you anymore. How do you get that back? By loving her first. By loving her first. Do you see that? It's again the question, are you going to believe Christ or not? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. There was a man many years ago, quite an amazing man by the name of Albert Schweitzer. He was a medical doctor. He was a concert organist. And he was a philosopher theologian. Now in that last one, he 
Christ did not die to give his church everything she wants. Christ died to make her like Christ. Yes, if my wife wants to learn photography and it doesn't interfere with all her other duties to the church and things like that, and I can find the way to find the money to get her a camera, yeah, I'm going to do things like that. But I don't direct my family according to what they want. Or according to what I want, but according to what Christ wants, that has to do with my children and my wife. You see that? I'm to lead my family into making biblical decisions, and that's to help them grow in sanctification. And that's why it's so important that I'm a biblical man and that I understand what true piety is. If you don't, you'll make a mess out of things. There are some men that hear this, they become legalists. They kill all the fun and joy in their home. Everything becomes Bible study and prayer and church and fasting. It becomes a religious home. I 
hate that. Does my family go to church? Yes, we're faithful to our church. And we seek to be a blessing to our pastor. We serve people in our church. Do we have family devotions? Yes, we do. Do we pray? Yes. Do my wife and I sometimes fast? Yes. But we're not a religious home. We're not a legalistic home. My home looks more like a circus. I want to love the Lord. I want to obey Him. But there's also... The life that He's given us. There's the sometimes spending a little bit more money to have just a wonderful meal and celebrate it. There's celebrating Christmas and birthdays and things like that. There's joy with my children. There's grabbing my wife in the kitchen and, kitchen and dancing all through the house. Now that's very hard for a Baptist. <laughs> My whole point is that I don't want you to try to turn your house into some religious prison. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the life and the joy of the Spirit. Do you see that? And I'm not just talking about rules and obedience and discipline, even though that's there. But I'm talking about grace and mercy and kindness. Do you see that? Remember the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is severity, discipline, and rule keeping. That's not what it says. Love, joy, peace, patience. Dad, you know uh, your fishing pole, your favorite fishing pole that you like to use to fish? This happened a few months ago. My seven-year-old daughter. Dad, you know your favorite fishing pole? You're not going to go fishing with it anymore. You need a new one. Why do I need a new one? Because I was using it to sword fight with the dog. And here's the two pieces of your fishing pole now. Did you kill the dog too? No? Okay. Give me a hug. Yes, there's time for discipline. Yeah. There's time for grace. Dad, I washed your car. What did you use to wash the car? Well, it was really dirty, so I used a wire brush. The paint looks really funny now. Well, I guess the people will say they've never seen another car like this one. So there are rules, there are commands, but let grace prevail. Grace with your wife, grace with your husband, forgiveness. Love covers a multitude of sins. Never forget this. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth leaves a lot of people without eyes and without teeth. And that's not what we want. That's not what God wants. Look at verse... 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Look at this first part, that he might present to himself the church. In the United States, we have a term called, I don't know if it'll translate, but a term called trophy wife. It's when some rich guy marries this super beautiful Woman, just to show her off like he's a tr like she's a trophy. He loves that she's beautiful. So she, 
he can present her to everybody else. But why is Christ making the church beautiful so that she'll be beautiful to him? He presents her to himself. This is amazing. Now. I've heard men say I've been married for 10 years and I just don't like my wife. Maybe it's your fault. Have you worked to make her beautiful? That's what Christ is doing. He's working to make her beautiful. He's working to make her pleasing to him. Is that what you're doing? Are you investing in her? But then there's another thing to think about also. Maybe as a man, your desires aren't right. Maybe she's not beautiful to you because you're full of sensual lust and you want something from her that really isn't what Christ wants from her. See, again, this is why it's so important that we're renewing our mind in the word of God. I want my wife to be beautiful to me, but my definition of beauty should not be coming from the world's definition of beauty. God's definition of beauty. You see that? And ladies, let me tell you something. I tell my sons this all the time. I said, guys, listen to me. She may be beautiful, but is she virtuous? Because a beautiful woman without discretion is like a pig with a gold ring in its nose. And if you marry a girl just because she's physically beautiful, you will regret it your entire life. Because it's not the physical beauty. It's the communion. It's the friendship. It's the virtue. Now, let me just say something here. Okay, now get ready. You know, before you got married, you know, you guys, before you got married, you were, you were jogging, doing exercise, maybe lifting weights. You were a lot thinner than you are now. And when you saw your wife for the first time, you would always make sure your teeth were brushed and things like that. You tried to look as good as possible to impress her. And then you married her and you just. <laughs> that is sin. Now, look, none of us in this room look like movie stars, that's for sure. And none of us look like, you know, some uh, athlete. But I want to tell you something as a man. If you do not take care of yourself physically, it's just wrong. Now, don't follow the standards of this world. But to honor your wife, you need to take care of yourself because she owns your body. And ladies, it's the same way. Now, again, we're not following the standards of the world. But at the same time, we need to be in some way the best that we can be. I don't care if you're 75 years old. You still need to seek to be as attractive in a biblical way as you can be for your spouse. It's important. It is. It's part of showing respect for one another. I'm not saying everybody has to go to a gym or something, but I'm saying that we should take care of ourselves the best that we can. Okay, I just threw that in. That won't cost you any more money. <laughs> Husbands, if you don't like your wife, maybe you haven't been investing in your wife. Let me tell you a story I heard uh, that I read many years ago. The title of the story is The Eight Cow Wife. You say, what's that about? There was this certain tribe in Africa where if a man wanted to marry a woman, he had to go to the father and pay a price. And the highest price that could be paid was eight cows. Well, this man, this farmer, 
He had a daughter. She wasn't very pretty. He knew he wasn't going to get eight cows for her. He would have been happy if he just got a few chickens. Well, one day this man shows up and he goes and he says, I want to marry your daughter. And the farmer said, you're kidding. I want to marry your daughter. Well, the farmer didn't even want to ask him how much he was willing to pay. But finally, the farmer said, well, how much are you going to pay? And the man said, eight cows. The farmer almost fainted. He's like, have you seen my daughter? You're going to pay eight cows? He said, yeah. He paid the eight cows. He married her. After the wedding, someone said, why did you pay eight cows? And he said, because I always wanted to have a wife worth eight cows. The wife came to be known in the whole tribe as the eight cow wife. And at the end of her life, she had become that eight cow wife. Do you see that? You see how different that is from us? If you become worthy of my affections, I'll give it to you. Do you see how filthy that is? That's not the way God does it. He gives his affections to those who are least worthy. And then he he works to make them worthy. He dies to make them worthy. You know, sometimes, especially when I'm at a seminary or something, I'll, students will be talking, trying to explain the Trinity, arguing between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism, all the complexities of the book of Revelation. And I walk by and they go, what do you think, Brother Paul? I don't know. I'm just trying to learn how to love my wife. And I walk away. Remember what he said? I won't be judged on the day of judgment for what I don't know. I'll be judged for what I didn't do that I knew. And what is the greatest thing I know? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my first neighbor? My wife. My wife. Now let's continue. He says in verse 28, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Now look at that. You know, there is there are certain people in the world and they actually tear at their own bodies. They will cut their own bodies. And you know what that's called? A mental disorder. In other words, they're called crazy and they're put in an insane asylum. And sometimes they're tied down because anyone who mutilates his own body has got a serious problem. That's what Paul's saying here. Your wife really is your body. You are the head. She's part of you. To hurt her is insane. It's self-destructive. It's crazy. Do you see that? To hurt her is to hurt yourself and wife. To hurt your husband is to bruise your own head. It's insane. But we're insane, aren't we? That's why the Puritans refer to sin as insanity. Now, I want you to see something here. In verse 28, So husbands ought also to love themselves, to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. This verse, along with another verse that I'm going to mention, are two of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. It goes like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. 
So I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself. If I don't love myself first, I won't be able to love my neighbor. So I need to learn how to love me so I can love my neighbor. Then you look at this text. Love my wife as I love myself. If I don't love myself, I can't love my wife. So I need to learn how to love myself so I can love my wife. That is the stupidest thing that has ever come out of the mouth of a human being. That is not what Jesus is teaching. It's what most of the pastors in America are teaching, but it's not what Jesus is teaching. When he says you are to love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying this, listen to me, you've never had a problem loving yourself. You've always been good at loving yourself. You've always put yourself first. Now go do that to your neighbor. See the difference? Our problem is self-love. Our problem in marriage is that we love ourselves first. So go, don't go home and tell your wife, honey, I'm working on loving you better. Right now I'm in stage one. I'm learning how to love myself. And your wife says, you've been in stage one for 20 years. Could you move on to stage two? You see that? It's not what he's saying. We're going to close right now and Хорошо, we'll сейчас мы прервемся. After lunch. I know that we've laughed a bit, but these things are very serious. Let's pray. Father, please take your word and use it in the heart of your people. Please transform our marriages and our families. In Jesus' name, amen.